Take your Bible this morning, turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14 of Hebrews 9. Honor God's word, I invite you to stand to your feet with me as we read the passage together. Beginning in verse 1, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand, the table, the bread of the presence, it's called the holy place, and behind the second curtain, the second section called the most holy place, having the gold altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, which was a golden urn holding the manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we can now speak, we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and uh, he but once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. But this, the Holy Spirit, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for this present age, according to this arrangement. Gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy place by the means of the blood of goats and calves, by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Ask now, Lord, that your spirit would be our teacher. Pray, Father, that uh, everything that, that we need personally from you, Father, you would speak into us today. Father, that we would encounter you in, in a beautiful way, in a, in a way that really changes us, that transforms us, that makes us different. Father, we pray that you would help us to grasp your word because your word is a light to our feet and it is the words of life. And in it is Jesus. And so I pray God help our eyes to adjust because they've been in this world all week and uh, seeing holy things uh, first feels a little fuzzy, but then our spiritual eyes adjust and we see a greater reality than anything this world has to offer. So give us spiritual eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us a heart to respond in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, my uh, wife sent me a sermon clip uh, of this guy. I don't even know who he, he was, some preacher somewhere, who was talking about this AI-generated uh, picture of Jesus apparently taking a selfie at what appears to be the Last Supper. And apparently this particular picture caused quite a controversy because people apparently were offended by the idea of Jesus taking a selfie, for one, but much less the idea of taking Jesus taking a selfie during the Last Supper, which was believed you know, to be a rather sobering Event. And while all that's probably true, the preacher then read a quote by Bear Grylls, the great theologian of survival. And he quoted on Twitter uh, a different take on this picture, which I love. Here's what Bear Grylls said. This image of Jesus taking a selfie created quite a storm when it first came out. But what from I have learned about the, this refugee and renegade is that Jesus truly was a wild one. He was totally non-religious, 100% free, fun-loving, and insanely generous and kind. Wherever he went, he healed and cared for the poor and the sick. And he always hung out with those who society had shunned. I love these words that he said to the religious elite when confronted about the company he kept. Quote, later when Jesus was eating supper at Matthew's house with his close followers, a lot of disreputable characters came and joined them. And when the Pharisees saw him keeping this kind of company, they had a fit and lit into Jesus' followers. What kind of example is this from your teacher acting cozy with crooks and riffraff? Jesus, overhearing, shot back, who needs a doctor, the healthy or the sick? Go figure out what this scripture means. I'm after mercy, not religion. I'm here to invite outsiders, not coddle insiders. The above story is another reason I love Jesus. But I, I kind of think that uh, Grills is on to something here. Why do we always have this image of Jesus in our minds that he's kind of this, this uh, stone-cold serious person all the time? Uh, and, and yes, I'm not saying that he was a big jokester. He was obviously very serious about his mission, the reason that he came. But I also think that Jesus was a, a hoot to, to hang out with. Uh, that's why the serious, staunch religious types were offended by him. That's also why the outcast, I believe, were drawn to him. And if Jesus was like that, if Jesus was was wild and free, he was a beautiful renegade, then why are his followers not known for being the same way? Uh, we're often known for being the, the cold, stone, serious, judgmental types. Now, I'm not talking here about personality types. I, I'm talking about uh, being truly free in the way Jesus was. Uh, doesn't the gospel free us, right? Doesn't the gospel un unleash us from religion? 
Doesn't it free us from performance? Doesn't it free us from having to walk a religious tightrope for others and for God? And the answer, of course, is a resounding yes. We are free. So then, shouldn't Christians, shouldn't we be a wild and free bunch? Shouldn't we be called the friend of sinners? Shouldn't we hang out with all the wrong kind of people? Shouldn't we be so associated with identifying with the riffraff and the ragamuffins that we are seen taking selfies with them? These are my peeps. Uh, that's kind of what the expression I get here. And, and what I love about this is, is they look just as surprised. Look at this guy on the end over here. They look just as surprised to be in the picture as it is that Jesus has taken the picture. We have been unleashed. We have been unleashed by Christ to worship him with total abandon, to be constantly freaked out that he chose to include us as his people, right? that, that, that we are still stunned that he loves us in spite of the mess that we are, and that when he says, hey, this is my people, he says to each of us, you come get in the picture. I love that. We've been unleashed. One of my joys in life is to uh, take my dog for a morning walk. We have a very, very strict habit, or she does, I might say. Every morning, about the time that the sun barely creeps over the horizon, she's in my face whining, and she's ready to go. And so we go for uh, a walk. A walk for her is not just simply going around the block. A walk for her means that I, I strap on her harness. Uh, she, is, she is very strong. She's a boxer. And, and I put uh, a leash on her. And then I grab a ball and I grab my launcher because she's, she's about to just run. She loves to run. And so we walk and we walk to the, she walks me rather to the, to the end of the street and there's this giant field out there. And we have the same routine every single morning. When we get to the field, she sits down. I don't have to say a word. She just sits down and she waits. And then I reach down and I unhook the leash. And she just sits there and waits. And then I say, go. And she takes off in a full sprint. She knows I'm fixing to hurl that ball 50 yards ahead of her. And she is just loving life. She's running. Her ears are flapping in the wind. She's having the time of her, of her life. And it's all because she has been unleashed and told to run, told to go. Well, that's what I, I picture the writer of Hebrews doing here in chapter 9. He's undoing the leash, if you will. He's telling us that we are free from the old covenant and the effects that the old covenant has on us, which is, is a lot like being on a leash. 
Psalm 103, which I read earlier, is, is full of this great news, right, of forgiveness. If you were uh, listening in on that, uh, Psalm 103 is just, we have been set free. Uh, you have been forgiven. As far as the east is to the west, I will remember your sins no more. All of this beautiful good news, and my love is an everlasting love. It's a steadfast love. But then there's this. Verses 17 and 18. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. Isn't that good news? On those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, just the righteousness of God from generation to generation. But then this. To those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments hey it's just like oh this is good news this is good news this is good news oh this isn't such good news because all of a sudden all these benefits of god's grace have a condition put on them those who keep his covenant and at the time that was written right who was who was the covenant under? It was under the covenant of works. It was a covenant of law. It was the old covenant. And so when you read that passage through old covenant eyes, it starts off with such beautiful good news, and then it goes south. But to read that passage again through a new covenant, through new covenant eyes, it changes everything. The condition has been removed. The, the leash has been taken off with the new covenant. And it's like God says, go. Go now. Run free. Run wild. Run in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Under the old covenant, there was a lot that could separate us from the love of God, mainly our inability to accomplish the law, to accomplish the covenant. But, but under the new covenant, everything changes because it's like God said, well, under the new covenant, those laws that I need you to obey, I obeyed them for you. Those commandments that are the condition of my love, I did those in your place. And so now you're just simply free in my love. Now imagine with me what it would have been like to, to worship God under the old covenant. Just kind of picture uh, for, for the last 364 days of the year, uh, you have been waiting for this one day to finally arrive. The night before it finally arrives, it's called the Day of Atonement, and so the night before it finally arrives, you go out to your sheep pen and you start looking for that special one that you're going to offer up to God. And so you're going through, you're looking for one that's perfect, you're looking for one that's flawless, and you're going through them all, and you finally see the one. And you're like, oh, this is the best I have. And so you, you might, you know, wash that, that sheep, you know, you brush it out, brush the wool, everything to make it just as 
as offerable as you can come up with. And so the next morning you, you wake up and you're kind of excited, but you're kind of anxious all at the same time because today is the day that you're going to meet with God, that you're going to have your sins atoned for. So you grab your sheep and you show up at the temple and there's this huge line, right? You know there's got to be this huge line. And everybody in line is holding, you know, their, their sheep, their goat, carrying, you know, their, their birds, their doves along for the poor. And everybody has some, some offering to give to God because God does not allow us to come before him without blood. And so we have a sacrifice. And so you wait and you wait and you wait in this line and you finally get to the front of the line and a priest is there to meet you and the priest looks over your, your, your lamb says, all right, it'll do. And then takes it off into the Holy of Holies. And you're like standing there. And then you kind of look through the door and you see that it's handed off further to the high priest who takes it inside the Holy of Holies behind a tent. And you're just standing there. And all of a sudden, somebody yells, next? And you're like, what? Yeah, next. Got to keep the line moving. See you next year. How do you feel in that moment? Do you feel clean? Do you feel forgiven? And, and let's say that you do. You know, you're going, well, you know, you're like, whatever. I mean, whatever, that's okay. Uh, if, if the priest says that worked, then I'm going with that. But what about four months down the road? Four months of accumulated sin has gone by. And you're looking at the calendar, and you still have eight more months till the next day of atonement. Eight more months of sinning to do, or to stop from doing. Eight more months until you're going to feel clean again, that you're going to feel accepted by God again. How do you like that worship? But then, you know, you go, well, at least there's one guy, right? There's one guy who, who, who is able to, to encounter God. you got this whole story about this, this high priest. I mean, at least one guy who represents the people. He gets to encounter the living God up close and in person. I mean, he's the guy that takes your lamb inside. He's the guy who, who walks in. He's the guy who sees the golden ark of the covenant with his own eyes. And he knows that inside that ark of the covenant, there's three things that are all from Moses' day. I mean, these relics, right? There's a bowl or an urn, it says, of, of manna. There's Aaron's rod that had, had budded. It right? It's like a museum of artifacts in this thing. And finally, there's the literal broken tablets from the Ten Commandments that Moses brought down the mountain. 
all inside there. Well, every one of those things represent the sins of Israel. Every one of them is a picture of when God's people had rebelled against the living God. And so he takes the blood from the lamb and he sprinkles it on the mercy seat. And you can imagine what a bloody mess that thing is by the end of the day. And he sprinkles a layer of blood between the presence of God, which is said to be between the wings of the cherubim that hover above the ark on the mercy seat. And so the presence of God and the sins of the people are separated by a layer of blood. What an encounter that would be, huh? To be at that place. He had a front row seat to atonement. And yet, even the high priest is a lot closer to the people standing outside in line than he is to the God of who he is presenting these offerings. Because you see, the first person in line that morning would have been him. The passage says that he had to offer up blood for his own sins. And so even though he got home that evening, probably had blood still crusted and, and dried all over him in places, he knew full well that a month wouldn't go by before he was just stained with guilt and sin as he was that moment with blood. Now the system itself had, had its purpose, right? The system had a purpose. It was all pointing to a greater reality in Christ that was yet to come. But nevertheless, it was still worship on a leash. It, it was full of regulations and relics and rituals. You had to go to a certain place, the tabernacle or the temple. You had to go through a certain priest, the high priest, whoever that happened to be selected for that year, as long as he was from the line of Levi. The priest had to perform a certain practice he had to offer a blood sacrifice on your behalf. And it happened at a certain point, one day a year on the Day of Atonement. It was a leash. You know, all that tells us that we are much more sinful than we think we are. In fact, it says that they offered up sins these priests offered up sins for the people, even their unintentional sins, in verse 7. Their unintentional sins. We're so sinful that half the time, we don't even know what we're doing is sinful. We didn't even know that we've done something sinful in order to confess it. And so it was like, okay, we're going to cover everything you've confessed, but there's a lot of other things you haven't confessed because you don't even know about it, but we're going to cover that too with this lamb. We're more sinful than we think we are. But the good news is that we are much more loved than we deserve to be. So Old Covenant worship was a leash. 
it, it, it was, there was three things about it that, uh, that kind of set it apart and, and not in a good way. First of all, it was, it was a dangerous affair, worship back then, right? Because you didn't want to come into the presence of a holy God without uh, a sacrificial substitute. You did not come into the presence of God without blood. Secondly, it was a distant affair because the average person, all of us, we would have had to keep our distance from God and allow the priest to do the worshiping for us. We would have a priest that would go through the holy place and we would stand outside the door because we were too unholy to go in. And then that priest right, would actually have to hand off our sacrifice to the high priest who would go therefore into the next section of the temple, which is the holy of holies. So if we can't get through the holy place, there's no way we're getting to the holy of holies. And so it was a distant kind of worship. We just kind of stood at a distance while somebody else did it for us. Thirdly, it was a discouraging affair because the blood of bulls and goats can't erase your inner shame and the guilt and you feel distant from God not just simply because you're standing on the outside but because within you know that you are far apart from his holiness. And so it's a dangerous affair. It was a, a distant affair. It was a discouraging affair and a dangerous, distant, discouraging way to relate to God always results in dead worship. Dead worship. John Piper says, where feelings for God are dead, worship is dead. What kind of feelings... Would such a system uh, evoke in you towards God? Martin Luther thought he understood what God demanded of him, what it took to please him, and so he worked tirelessly to endeavor to make God happy, and yet the weight of that and the constant failure to do so uh, made him come to a point where he, he, he just couldn't bear it anymore. And so one time Luther was asked by a fellow monk, Brother Martin, do you love God? And this is what he said. Love God? You ask me if I love God? Sometimes I hate God. I see Christ as a consuming judge who is simply looking at me to evaluate me and visit affliction upon me. Luther was consumed with a paralyzing fear of God that made him rage at God. Now, what kind of worship do you think is going to come out of that emotional stream? Well, I'll tell you what kind. The dead kind. Dead worship. How can you worship the living God with dead worship? He's, he's, he's living. How can we offer him joyless, thoughtless, passionless worship? Well, the only way we can do that is if we're dead, right? If we're unaware and we are unaffected 
by God's grace. Then we're trying to do all of this stuff and worship him out of a sense of, I have to do this, I have to go through these regulations, these rituals, these routines, or else. And that's dead worship. In fact, it says in verse 8, that as long as this system is in place, that the Holy Spirit is indicating that the way into the holy place is not yet been opened. So all of this routine and ritual and regulation still doesn't get us into the presence of God. We're still on the outside looking in. We're still closed off, separated. And that kind of worship, when you come and you worship God and you feel like that God is closed off from you, well, that's going to feel like you're just worshiping out of duty and, and never delight. Ah. But then, the one whom all the Old Covenant regulations, relics, and rituals pointed to showed up. Showed up. Jesus shows up at the temple. Right? What does he do? He cleans house. He cleans house. It's like, nope, things are different now. We're not doing it this old way. The true high priest, the true sacrificial lamb, the true atonement has come in Jesus. Look at verse 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of blood, of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Man, Jesus took off the leash. Jesus put an end to worship according to regulations and relics and rituals. How? By accomplishing once and for all all those things that they were meant to signify. He's like, all those things were just pointing to, to me. I'm here now. Jesus was the, the, the greatest and the last high priest to represent us to God. And Jesus entered into the holy place, not with some lamb that we picked out of the pen, but he walked in there as the lamb of God, and nobody comes before God without blood, and so he brought his own. And with that blood, he paid the price, and he secured for us our eternal Redemption. It says eternal redemption. Not temporary, not see you next year, and we'll do it all over again. Eternal redemption, once and for all, bought and paid for. And this changes everything, doesn't it? What, what this does is, is it unleashes us to worship God in a way that is now acceptable because we come in the name of Jesus, worship that is alive, not dead, but living worship. And worship on the new covenant is no longer a dangerous affair. 
right? Because we're now fully accepted and embraced by God when we walk in the doors or when we worship Him in our own private time. We come into His presence with our sins having been removed from us as far as the east is to the west. It's no longer, therefore, a distant affair, right? Which means that we can drop in on God anytime we want. We don't have to have someone access God on our behalf. We have the ability to go straight into the throne room of God. Therefore, it's no longer a discouraging affair because the blood of Jesus washes away our sin and our shame once and for all. We no longer have to jump through the hoops of regulations and rituals and relics every time we sin in order to be made with God once again. The presence of God has been opened up to you. Jesus washed away our sin and our shame once and for all, forever. No longer do we have to jump through any kind of hoop. No longer do we have to go through any kind of system. Our worship has been resurrected, which means that it's living, that it's alive. Have you guys been... Uh, Keeping up with this revival that's been going on in Asbury? Man, how cool has this thing been? Right, I've been so encouraged, overjoyed uh, by, by the work uh, that I've seen at it. They were supposed to have uh, Francis Chan. He was supposed to come speak Thursday, uh, kind of at a, a closing big collegiate rally. And they like planned this. Uh, a long time in advance before this thing actually got started. And they decided that uh, we probably don't want Francis to come in here. Who needs Francis Chan when you got the Holy Spirit? And so, and so the, they just said, we don't want celebrities. We this thing was completely and totally student-led. It was, it was simultaneous. It, it, it was just simply a, an act of God. And it was so exciting. Not everybody feels that way. But the reality is, is that this revival marks a pattern. So I've kind of studied revivals for a long time, and, and I've tasted of revivals. And revivals, genuine revivals, movements of the Holy Spirit, have the exact same pattern. They follow a pattern. And the pattern works something like this. Right? Uh, first, prayer. Prayer by just a few. I, I began to read... Uh, stories that, that this campus, students have been praying, professors have been praying. There was one professor, a visiting professor, that had been praying and fasting so long for revival prior to this that the other uh, professors were concerned for his health. And so don't think that this thing was just completely out of nowhere because there was a lot of people for over a year hungering for it to happen. That always happens first. Secondly, uh, there is a time in the early stages of revival where there is nothing but, it's not like this, it's more of a, a sense of, of woe is me. There's a time of confession, there's a time of confessing sin, there's a time of brokenness, and there's a time of repentance. And as I read, that's exactly what happened in the early stages uh, of this thing. Most of us weren't aware of it till it was in stage three. Stage three is then a response to the grace and mercy of God's forgiveness 
which is worship. And how long did they worship? Three weeks. Three weeks. They'd still be there today, except the president's like, we've got to have classes, people. We've got to, you know, obviously we, we, we can't just do this forever, so let's move it to the churches. Well, that's a good idea. And this thing has just spread and spread in many different campuses. I, uh, I got a picture. I didn't put it up here, but I got a picture of, of hundreds of students at Texas A&M, of course, God's school, where, where, where God just showed up and, and people are worshiping. And, uh, and this thing is just, just spreading everywhere. But it, it's that sense of going, there's a natural progression that when you experience the grace and mercy of God, that you can't help but just celebrate and worship. And that's what they did. That's what they did. Worship always flows out from God's grace. It's a response to grace. Worship always extends from blood-bought forgiveness and salvation. You know that a, a church or a people need revival when their worship is dead. When it's filled with, with rituals and relics and regulations. When people are just going through the motions. Revival is needed. My seminary days didn't prepare me for the worship wars uh, that I was going to encounter. I graduated the first time in 1995 in the, in the heat of battle, it seems. And so I was blindsided by how angry uh, people got over styles of worship. That they were certain is what God wanted. And so all these questions, you know, does God prefer hymns or choruses? Or maybe psalms, you know, maybe you could just sing psalms. Does God prefer choirs or bands? Does God prefer the pipe organ or a guitar? Plugged or unplugged? Hand raising or more subdued? Joyful, solemn. Litur liturgy are just being moved by the Spirit. On and on it went. And all those things, when you stop and think about it, are really just a modern day variety of regulations, rituals, and relics of the past. Every one of them. They are ways to put leashes on the people. And most of the people in the front lines of these worship wars never bothered to ask the question, what does God want? What does God prefer from us? Right? We're always concerned, everybody was concerned about what they preferred. What they wanted. I believe God preferred his people to love one another. That God preferred his people to worship from their heart and not from formulas. Jesus said this in Matthew 15, 8. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So Jesus doesn't want lip service. Right? He, he wants hearts 
hearts unleashed. He doesn't want us to recite facts and information. He wants us to worship freely. He doesn't want uh, routinely sung songs or rotely to hear the word of God. He wants hearts engaged. Hearts that properly respond to what Jesus has done for us. I mean, he sends his son to die on a cross and then he looks at his people and he goes, that's, that's your reaction to that? Often I think my greatest, my greatest obstacles to giving God my unleashed worship is not because of the style. It's always because of my heart. Every time. And I'm usually the first one to put a leash on myself. When I slip back into law mode. When I didn't worship God during the week and just expect to turn it on on Sunday. When there's no gratitude in my heart. When the cross is absent from my sight. When, when I make worship about myself. When I judge it according to how it made me feel or how I didn't feel. When I have unconfessed sin residing in me. When I don't treasure Jesus. When I haven't preached the gospel to myself during the week. I leash myself. Christ has unleashed us and the Spirit says to each and every one of us, go! Just go. And run and be free. Why do you restrict your own heart? Because here's the thing about New Covenant worship, right? God has one requirement. He has one requirement. And the requirement is this. We come in the name of Jesus with his blood. That's the only requirement. The blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. Our worship becomes a response to the blood of Christ. Nobody comes before God without blood. We come to God through the blood of Jesus. Uh, by the way, I'm not saying that anything, therefore, anything goes in, in worship. I'm not saying that. Our worship must express our response to the blood of Christ. It's not the all about me show. Right? As long as everything we do is centered on Jesus and his glory and is a response to his sacrifice on our behalf, then I believe it's acceptable to God. So you have blood-covered hymns or blood-covered choruses or blood-covered choirs or blood-covered bands, blood-covered celebrations or blood-covered laments. And if you're, you know, someone who's listening in and you're going, man, these people are weird. It may sound gruesome to you, but to us it's everything. What can wash away our sins? All right, you're on this. What can make me whole again? Okay, you could do better. 
This is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness. That's it. That's it. The blood of Jesus has unleashed us from dead worship. How do we respond to the cross with dead worship? Right? We can't. The cross quickens our heart's passion for Jesus. We have been united with Christ. We have been seated with him in the heavenlies. We enter in with him into the Holy of Holies. To the very presence of God. Where we find his blood's been sprinkled for us. But check this out. Check this out. Not only have we been unleashed from dead worship, but we are also unleashed from dead works. Look at verse 14. I love this. How much more, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Man, we've been... We've been set free, we've been unleashed from dead worship, and we've been unleashed from dead works. The gospel, now listen to this carefully, all right, because you can really, if you're just kind of half, half with me right now, this can mess you up, all right? The gospel does not free us from works. The gospel frees us from dead works. There's a huge difference here. It means it's the difference between serving God out of a sense of love and a response of gratitude towards His grace or serving God in hypocrisy and legalism. So what are, what are dead works? What are dead works? Well, again, verse 14, it says that we have been unleashed from the monotony of dead works, how? By the blood of Christ. So, dead works are the things that we do to try to gain God's approval apart from the blood of Christ. That's the first thing. Second, dead works are the works that are associated with the old covenant. Right Before Christ came, the people of God were leashed to a system of, of regulations, relics, and rituals. But now we have been unleashed from those dead works. We no longer have to approach God through that system because it's been made obsolete, it's dead. Third, dead works are works that we do in order to try to purify our own conscience says we've been purified from that. When we, when we try to make up for some sin or try to overcome a guilty conscience by swearing that we're going to do better, that we're going to try harder, uh, that's a dead work. That's a dead work. Because the only thing that can cleanse our conscience is the blood of Jesus. We, we, we can't work ourselves and tip the scale in our favor. 
How many people are serving in the church motivated because of guilt and shame? How many people are trying to right some past wrong by, by doing something, serving in some way? That's dead. That's a dead work. And dead works lead to death. Fourth, dead works are works that we do in order to re earn reward points with God. In other words, it's like, God, here's what I did, and, uh, and now you, you bless me because uh, I, I earned it. And that puts God as our debtor. God is, God is a debtor to no one. The blood of Jesus has unleashed us from all of that. We have been unleashed from dead works. Dead works. But that doesn't mean we're free from all works. It says that now that our conscience has been clean, we are free to serve the living God. We serve the living God. In other words, uh, instead of dead works, because we're serving the living God, we serve him with, with living works, you could say. Living works. By, by dead works, you know, you're talking about things associated with the old covenant, with the law. By living works, you're talking about life in the spirit. We're saved from dead works, and we are saved for living works. Let me show you a couple of passages. Ephesians 2.10 says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice that the works that we do come after the fact that we are created in Christ Jesus. And then Titus 2.10 says, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So he saved us so that we would be zealous to serve him. The old covenant said, live like this and you will be accepted. The new covenant says you're accepted, therefore live like this. That means that our service for God is... One of, of freedom and joy. It's not motivated by guilt. It's not motivated by, by fear. It's not motivated by obligation. But now once again, once again, I still find my conscience unconvinced. I still struggle with the idea that God is crazy about me. And so I resort back to dead works to try to purify my conscience. I go back to my leash. So again, I have to go and sit down and have a gospel conversation with myself. Remind myself of the blood of Christ. We've been unleashed from, from dead works to serve the living God. Right? How do you give dead works to a living God? You don't. And then second question was, how do you even serve God? Right? How do you serve God? It's not like he needs anything from us. And that's precisely the point. He doesn't need anything from us because Jesus did it all. So now we don't serve God because he needs us to serve him. 
We serve him because we love him and we enjoy serving him. And we serve God really by serving others in his name. And we're, we're invited to join Jesus in this wild and free adventure of getting our, our hands dirty with all the wrong people. Taking selfies with all the wrong people. One thing I loved about the movement of God in Asbury is that there were no names associated with it other than Jesus. I love that, right? I heard testimonies. I began to listen to these testimonies of college students saying things like, man, here's what God did in me. And some people, you know, it's just like these radical conversions. But there was, uh, there was other people that were like, you know, I used to be afraid to pray in public. I was terrified of what I sounded like. But man, at, at this, when, when God's presence was so real and I felt so fully accepted by him, I felt free to pray. I was no longer worried about what everybody else was thinking. I was just talking to God. I love that. I love that. We've been unleashed. We're all energized by the possibility of seeing God do great things, right? You, 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 you've watched these clips from this revival and you just go, man, do it here. I just want to see God do this, some, some amazing and great things. But maybe we probably should consider something. We, we might want to define what we mean by great. Someone uh, being unleashed to pray out loud is a great thing. The fruit of the Spirit, if you look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, you know what it's not? The fruit of the Spirit is not miracles. It's not charismatic experiences. It's not masses of people coming to faith in Christ. That's all awesome. right? That's all the work of, of, of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and goodness and self-control. In this messed up society, people are starved for love and kindness and peace. Well, they're more starved for that than they are charismatic sermons and healings and miracles. In this day and age, kindness is a miracle. Love and patience are powerful expressions of the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, little tiny thing, which a man took and planted in his field, though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Do you see what he's saying? He said the kingdom of heaven, it doesn't come with all these, these huge, big, giant, spectacular things. It comes with little seeds, a seed of love planted in somebody, a seed of kindness, a seed of patience. And we go, whoa, what, is, what does that accomplish? And we may never know, but when we plant those seeds, God causes it to grow into something much larger, and it spreads, and the nations come and perch in the branches of these small seeds. 
So when you think about serving God, you may be looking at yourself and going, well, what can I do? What do I have to offer? What is the program does the church offer that I can be a part of? Now, all you really need to do is plant seeds, seeds of love and kindness and patience and goodness and generosity to other people for the glory of God. And then let him, let him take care of the growth. So don't count yourself out because you're not a dynamic speaker. You're not a powerful prayer warrior. You're a, not a, a much sought out after leader, right? These small things, they don't happen on a stage. And yet God's using them to turn the world upside down. So, in conclusion. In Jesus' name, you are unleashed. Now go. Go. Run. Run free. Run wild. Worship with all your might. Serve God. Plant kingdom seeds wherever God has placed you. What has washed away your sin? That's it. You're unleashed. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for uh, the, the good news of Jesus. We thank you, Father, how you have set us free in Christ. We no longer operate according to regulations and, and rituals and relics, but, Father, we operate in the freedom and joy and power of the Holy Spirit. So, Father, help us to, to stop putting leashes on ourselves. Help us to stop listening to other people who try to put leashes on us. Help us to be, be fun-loving, joyful people when we can. And help us to be authentic people when we're broken. And when we're hurting. That we don't have to put on a show anymore for anyone. Because we are accepted by Christ and we've been unleashed. So I pray, Father, today if there's any among us, Lord, who, who need to just remove some leashes, I pray, Father, set, set your people free. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand.